Good morning. Great to be with you. My name is Darren. I have the privilege of working with Pastor Robbie. Um, as we go about this business of planting churches together, I serve up in Phoenixville. And, um, you know, you ever, anyone here ever have an existential crisis? Anyone? So every time I preach here, my family has an existential crisis um, because they love, we all love coming here, but they also want to hear a different preacher besides me. So then they want to stay back home and hear a different preacher. So it's, it's very difficult, but today they are all here. So that's how much they love you and enjoy being here. And it is an honor and a privilege to be with you all. I can't tell you how much um, our elders really love you and love what's going on here. And so they've supported me coming uh, once a quarter to preach, to fill the pulpit uh, when Robbie needs that. Uh, and just to communicate uh, how deeply we pray for you and how excited we are by what God is doing here in you. Well, I'm going to read the scripture passage. I invite you to follow along. And actually, I thought today we would do something a little special. I'm going to begin reading uh, in verse 5, and when we get to verse 9, I wonder if we could all read the Lord's Prayer together. So would you listen now with open ears as I read from this, the book that we love. And this is Jesus speaking. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this altogether. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we come to this time and we sit under these words, and I recognize, as Parker said at the beginning of this service, that uh, we no doubt come from all sorts of different places. Some of us come in here and uh, things in our lives are going very well. Uh, we have more than we need. Our bodies are healthy. Our families are well. Uh, we are enjoying uh, so much blessing at this moment, and yet others come, come in here and our lives couldn't uh, be more different. Uh, things are not well. Some of us are here in crisis. Others of us are here dealing with physical ailment, some with depression, some with anxiety. Lord, some of us perhaps are even here this day in despair. And Lord, we recognize uh, that as we come here, that some of us come here uh, believing in you, uh, having believed in you for quite some time. Others of us come in here, no doubt, and we're not sure what we think of you. And certainly others are here, and we are quite sure uh, that we reject uh, the notion of you. And Lord, I pray that whatever place we find ourselves in, whether we come here uh, deeply feeling your blessing or overcome with grief, whether we come here with much faith in you or dealing with incredible doubt, I pray, O oh God, that you would give us grace to see 
that in the way that matters the most, we all ultimately come the same. We've all come in this room, we've sat under these songs, we've listened to these words with an overwhelming and an unrelenting need to hear from you, to know you, and to be changed by you. And Lord, we pray in one voice today that you would answer uh, the deepest need of, that we have by showing us the person of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning again. It's so great to be with you. And I am being told to do something. Turn this down. How do I do that? Okay. I don't see how to do that. Um, so I'm uh, bringing to you something that uh, has been on my soul for quite some time. Uh, and it addresses this question that I think is a question that's becoming more relevant the more our culture becomes less familiar with Christianity. And if you are here and you're not very familiar with Christianity, if you're saying, I don't know what this is all about, well, you're, you're amongst a great number right now in our day and age. In fact, as I have been uh, trying to figure out what God is calling uh, me to and in this day and time, one of the central answers that keeps coming back over and over again is that I find myself praying for a deep renewal in my community amongst people who have no interest in God or even no awareness of God. And so if you're here this morning and, and that's you, I want you to know that the words I have today are as much for you as they are for even Josh, right, who is leading us here in worship this morning. Um, one of the things that I've been thinking about is how do you communicate the central idea of Christian teaching to someone who's never heard of it before. I wonder if you've thought about that. Right? If, you, if you've encountered folks in your life and you want to tell them that you are a Christian and why you're a Christian, how would you go about doing that? Well, one of the ways that, uh, that I would answer that and one of the suggestions I would have for you is to go back to this question of which our church, our church's very first question, if you know uh, about this church, you know that this church believes uh, in a document called the Westminster Standards, right? And the Westminster Standards include something called a catechism. In fact, the kids are learning catechism this morning. And the very first question the catechism asks is this, what is the man's chief and highest end? In other words, why do you exist, right? How many of you know the, know the catechism's answer to that? A couple of you. This is the catechism's answer. It says, man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's why you exist according to the faith once delivered to the saints of which this church is a part. And I want you to consider that for a moment, right? If God is real, if God exists, if he has a plan and a purpose for people, and if what the church has believed for thousands of years is in fact true, then God's plan for you is that you would relate to him in worship that is characterized by joy. That's his plan for you. His plan for you, I want you to hear this again, his plan for you, God's will for your life, is that you would know him, that you would relate to him in worship, such as we've done this morning, that is characterized by joy. That's what he wants. And friends, it couldn't be more, this message couldn't be more different than the preponderance of world religions, could it? 
Right? World religions typically boil down to something like this. This is what you must do in order for God to accept you so that he doesn't do bad things to you. Right? That's the preponderance of world religion. Right? But Christian teaching says God has made you for the purpose of you knowing a height of joy such that you have never experienced before. That's what he's up to. Now, I have adopted this as my personal mission. It's become a bit of a mantra, as I'm reminded from time to time. But as I have thought about why is it that I'm a pastor, I answer it in this way. I say, I believe that God has called me to pastor people, to plant churches, to walk alongside those under my care in order that they would have a deepening of joy in God. That's what I'm up to in general. And friends, that is what I'm up to for you this morning. In fact, I prayed for you earlier, and I said, God, I pray that this work that I'm doing this morning would somehow result in an increase in this people, in their joy in you. Now, how do we go about doing that? Well, uh, this passage gives us, I think, some fairly uh, striking answers to this. Jesus is talking about the kind of prayer that will characterize those who really get this, right? There's a kind of prayer that characterizes those who get this. And, you know, the uh, folks who have understood this throughout history have all agreed with this. So uh, famous preacher Charles Spurgeon, this is what he had to say. He said, I know of no better thermometer to your spiritual temperature than this, the measure of the intensity of your prayer. And friends, I will tell you that as I have walked with God uh, these years of my life, and as I have pastored others, as I have uh, observed how God works, I will tell you that there's one part of your life that will never lie, right? There's one measurement of this goal that never lies. It can never be faked. And that is how you relate to God in the closet. How you relate to God in secret when no one's there and, and how they, he comes out in your prayers. You can never fake it. It's sort of like, you know, people say follow the money, right? You can always tell, you know, what's going on when you get down and follow the money. Well, in the Christian economy, it's more accurate to say follow the prayer. Follow what prayer looks like in secret. And that's, of course, what Jesus is getting at this morning. And what Jesus is doing here is he's bringing up some hindrances to the enjoyment of God that surface in the way that you pray. So some hindrances to the enjoyment of God that surface in the way that you pray. And I want to say, too, that it's possible that these hindrances are present in your life. And you may say, I don't, I don't think I'm really described in this passage because, you see, I don't pray. You see, these people in this passage... They, they seem to pray a lot. In fact, where I'm at, I haven't prayed in a week. I haven't prayed in a month. I haven't prayed in maybe five years. I maybe haven't prayed ever, you might say. Well, it's possible that if that's you, that perhaps part of the reason that you haven't or don't or don't regularly pray is that you're experiencing your own version of these hindrances. And so my goal for you this morning is to unpack this scripture, to raise this teaching, so that these hindrances might become undone in your life, if they're there, so that you might glorify God and enjoy him more deeply. So let's look at them together. I've got two. Number one, unbelief about God. And secondly, 
misunderstandings about God. So let's look at it firstly under unbelief about God. The most fundamental hindrance of prayer, and this might go without saying, but the most fundamental hindrance of prayer, the reason that will trump every other reason for why you might not pray, right, or whether you might not pray with joy, some of you pray, but you don't have joy when you do it, is that you simply don't believe in God or that God hears your prayers and will act because of them. Where do we see that? Well, Jesus says this in verse 5. He says, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corner. Why? That they might be seen by others. Right? So Jesus is describing a group of people, and they pray a lot. Only problem is, is that they're not praying in order that God would hear them. They're praying because they love performing. They love pretending. In fact, this word hypocrite, if you're familiar with the uh, idea behind this, hypocrite is basically an actor, right? It's basically someone who pretends. And if you have small children, you know that they love to pretend. And sometimes it gets wild in our house. So our family has, um, you know, we don't really have any cousins, sadly, for our kids. So I have one brother with children, but he's about 20 years older than me. So his kids are mostly grown and they live in Austin, Texas. And so my children grow up without cousins, right? And that's rough, you know, to do that. So you have to improvise when that's the case. And so my daughter, Eva, who's sitting up here, she, she's very innovative in this, in this regard. She said, dad, I, I don't want to live without cousins. I mean, this is unfair. So she decided to invent them. So one day we are sitting at the dinner table and she leaves and we're like, where, where in the world is she going? And we don't know. And then a little while later, we hear this knock at our door. We open the door and she's standing there and she says, Aunt Chrissy, can I come in and have dinner with you? My mom said it was okay. And she comes in and we're saying, okay. And she said, yeah, my you know, this is cousin Eva. She has the same name. <laughs> this is cousin Eva and I'm just here for supper. You know, because my mom said that I could have supper with you guys. So she has dinner, and then we said, well, Cousin Eva, you know, at our house, everyone has to participate in cleaning up after supper. And she's like, oh, no, no, my mom needs me home right now. (laughs) (laughs) And then she ran out, right? What was she doing? She was pretending, right? Which was hilarious, right? And that's cute and fun and good when you're a kid who has no cousin. But when you are relating to the God who has made you, who has designed you for his joy, Right? Simply pretending for the purpose of being seen by others will not deepen your joy. In fact, it will only deepen your own hardness. That's what it will do. Right? And that's what Jesus is concerned about. And you might say, yeah, but you know, Darren, like, maybe you're overestimating how many uh, of us in this room don't believe in Christianity. I mean, a lot of us are here and we, you know, we're uh, either members of this church, joining this church. We've, we believe for a long time. Well, I would remind you. Who is Jesus speaking to? Who is he speaking about? Who are these actors? Who are these pretenders? Who are the cousin Evas of this passage? Right? It's the people in the church. Right? He says, these folks in the synagogue, right? Description of the church in that day. These are the ones who pretend. It is so easy. The longer you are in church, it's actually easier to go to adopt a posture of acting, of pretending, than it is otherwise. So that's what's going on here. 
these folks are doing that. That's the first hindrance is unbelief about God. They don't actually believe that prayer will move God, so they've simply become satisfying, satisfied with putting on a show for others. That's the first hindrance. The second hindrance, and we'll spend the bulk of our time on this one, is uh, our two misunderstandings about God, right? So the first one was prayer is effectively a performance for others. I want to sound like I'm special, like I'm accomplished. That's the first one. The second one is done by others here, uh, which is described, they're described as the Gentiles. And verse seven, it says, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles, for they think they will be heard for their many words. And this misunderstanding views prayer not as a performance for others, but as a performance for God, right? So this one misunderstanding says, I'm performing so that others will think well of me. The other one is actually very similar. It said, I will perform so that God will be happy. Now, friends, I will tell you on great authority that if you are here this morning and you are finding yourself very dry Right? You say, I don't know anything about this idea of enjoying God because I feel so dry, I feel so cold, I feel so hard. Right? One reason that might be true, right? one reason that might be true is because you believe God is sitting up there in heaven with his popcorn waiting for a performance and you just don't have it in you. Right? This is what uh, the idea of pagan prayer is characterized by. Now, um, wonder how many of you folks have had any experience with paganism. Maybe you don't want to admit it. <laughs> well, we, our, our town actually has a very thriving, truly pagan community. Okay, we are up in Phoenixville, and uh, we have experienced this. In fact, there is a festival that draws, it's the number one festival in Phoenixville, draws over 10,000 people, we think, every year, and that's for the burning of the Phoenix. Right, some of you perhaps have been to this event. It's very, very renowned. Well, we used to live on the street where the march would go, and all of these folks who identify, this is not me, you know, being pejorative, right? They identify as pagan. They come out in force for this festival with their drum circles and chants and all this other stuff, right? In fact, our, na our neighbor was a shaman uh, who was very excited about these kinds of things. And if you have any experience with that, you know that you know, the idea behind paganism, right, part of that is, you know, we have to find the right formula. We have to find the right choice of words. And that's what Jesus is getting at here in that he's saying the Gentiles, they pray all the time. They don't do it so that other people will notice them. They do it so they can unlock the key that will somehow trick God into being good to them, right? Prayer is a performance. And perhaps you've never had any experience with paganism, right? But if you, if you were to survey your prayer life, if you were to survey the way you feel about praying, it's quite possible that for you, prayer is simply a performance for God. I have no desire to pray right now, but I feel if I don't, that somehow I will miss out on God's blessing. And so I'm going to try to do it simply to check it off the list. I am... Um, our elders were so gracious, they gave me a four-month sabbatical last year. In fact, right around this time, I was in the middle of it. And one of the major discoveries that I had is that as a pastor, right, a pastor of some churches that are kind of hip, I like to think, right? Um, you know, I had discovered that uh, I found that I was 
viewing my own prayers as a performance. And here's how I know. Because I would wake up in the morning, I'd be tired, I'd be groggy, and I'd say, if I don't pray, I'm going to be a bad pastor today. And that's probably right, okay? <laughs> it's hard to be a good pastor if you're not praying. But why was I praying? I was praying to check it off the list, to meet a requirement, right? Not for the reasons that we're going to get to in a moment. Prayer for me was simply a performance. It was a chore. It was a duty. It was not something connected to the kind of joy of which Christ speaks about in this passage. Is that where you are today? Right? Is that why you pray? Or perhaps, is that why you don't pray? Are you sitting here and saying, you know, I don't like to pray, and perhaps the reason is found in the idea that prayer for you is a performance. Now, that's the first thing. The second thing is, is that some of you don't pray because you feel like prayer has to be really long-winded and you run out of words. Well, you're, <laughs> you're, you're going to be blessed today because Jesus says this. He says that the Gentiles think they will be heard for their many words. And it's interesting because I've been uh, captivated by these folks from church history that are renowned for having prayed for hours. And so there's a famous idea, quote from Martin Luther, where he says, you know, I'm especially overwhelmed today. I have so much to do. I will never get through it. I better wake up two hours early to have more time for prayer. You ever heard that idea? Right? Charles Spurgeon, likewise, was known for spending hours and hours in prayer. George Mueller, whoops, same thing. But it's interesting because Spurgeon, who had this reputation of spending hours in prayer, this is what he says. He says, you are before the Lord. Let your words be few, but let your heart be fervent. And then he also said, prayer can never be in excess. And how do you reconcile that? How, do you, how are you known for spending hours and hours in prayer, but having few words? Right? How is it that Martin Luther could spend two, three hours in prayer, and yet he would write in his own Martin Luther way, condemning people who use a lot of words in their prayer. How does that work, friends? Right? There's only one answer to it. One answer for how you can spend hours in prayer and only say a few words. You know what it is? It's that you listen. Right? That the kind of prayer of which Jesus speaks involves listening. Right? Because God is not up there uh, waiting for you to get the formula exactly right. He is up there wanting to commune with you with the result of your joy. And one of the ways that he designs that is for you to pour out your soul to him, tell him, cast your cares upon him, knowing that he cares for you. But secondly, to be still and know that he is God. Do you listen to God? Do you listen in times of prayer? Right, that's what these folks who have unlocked this key, that's what they have found and Jesus is getting at that here this morning. He says, let your words be few. Uh, and he will um, also go on to say in verse 8, very, very helpful statement here. He says, don't be like the Gentiles who think they're heard for their many words. But look what he says secondly. He says, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. And this, friends, I think is the second misunderstanding about God that is particularly uh, strong in the tradition that I come from, perhaps some of you do as well. So Ironworks is what's called a church in the Reformed tradition. Does anyone, you guys all know what this is? Reformed tradition finds its history back actually to the Protestant Reformation, folks like Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox, and the Reformed tradition 
has as its uh, reputation a belief that God is far more in control in the events of this world than you could possibly imagine. Right, so we love to go back to Psalm 139, where it says, Before a word is on my tongue, O Lord, you know it already. You saw me when I was knit in the depths of the earth. Right, all the days that were ordained for me have, were written in your book before any of them came to pass. I'm just simply quoting from Scripture, but these are the passages that us folks in the Reformed tradition love to go to. Right, we believe that, that there is a profound mystery in the universe whereby we relate to God as individuals, right, with a will, with a soul, but yet in such a way that God has already planned everything out. It's a great mystery. And what Jesus is doing is he's getting at this idea here. He says, you know, your father knows what you need, so don't pray with many words, but he doesn't go on to say, but don't pray. Right? He still wants you to pray. And it's interesting because one of the things I've noticed in my comings and goings is that folks who embrace the Reformed faith, such as I have, one of the hindrances that we often have to prayer is found in looking at the, these grand statements of Scripture, right, that all the days that were ordained for me were written in your book before any of them came to pass. We look at that and we say, well, why in the world would I pray? Because whatever is going to be is going to be, right? Hey, Sarah, Sarah. Why would I even do that? What, what's the point if it's already set. And you know what happens? Is that we become fatalists. Right? We become robots. And friends, I can't tell you strongly enough that scripture is, has absolutely no sympathy with this position whatsoever. That Jesus Christ himself has no sympathy with this position whatsoever. Right? There are deep mysteries in the Bible, in the universe. Right? And Jesus will not allow you to say, well, because God is in control, then it doesn't matter anything that I do, it doesn't matter anything I say, it doesn't matter anything I pray, I'm just going to sort of see what happens next. Jesus will have no part of that, because if he did, he would say, it doesn't matter that you pray, just do something else, right? But he says, pray knowing that your Father knows what you need before you ask him, but pray nonetheless. It's interesting, I... Um, you know, one of the doctrines that's not really under great debate today, though it has been uh, in church history, is doctrine of the Trinity, right? So if you're a Christian, you know, in, in really any Christian tradition, you believe in something called the Trinity, right? And the Trinity says this. It says, there is one God eternally existent in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? That they are of the same essence, equal in power, honor, and glory. Right? And if, you know, Christians since the fourth century, really, or prior to that, have all embraced this, and yet there is profound mystery in this. Right? In fact, I was talking to my wife who's teaching uh, kids in, in our church. She's teaching a catechism class. And I, um, I said, uh, I said, you know, she was talk we were talking about how to communicate the doctrine of the Trinity, and I was just saying, you know, whatever you do, don't use analogies. Because, you know, people, you know, well-meaning people become heretics really fast when we start using analogies for the Trinity, right? It's like an egg that's hard-boiled. <laughs> we use all these various things. And the Trinity is, is very uh, mysterious, and we can't find great analogies for it because God is unlike these other things in our existence. And friends, if we accept that, if we accept that the universe has in it profound mysteries, 
then we must also accept that yes, God is in complete control over every moment of your lives. That he has planned what you will have for lunch today. But that that reality in no way reduces the degree to which you have a will, the degree to which you exercise it, and the degree to which God has called you to enjoy him in the moment. And a person who believes in the scriptures and the totality of Christian teaching embraces these things on equal footing, right? That's what Jesus is getting at here. He says, pray to your father, knowing that he, uh, believing that he knows what you need before you ask, right? So those are some hindrances to prayer. We might find that we have unbelief about God. We might find that we misunderstand God. So how is it that we might pray in such a way that deepens our enjoyment in God? How is it that we might do that, I wonder? Well, it's found in this one word here at the end of verse 6. Let me read it for you. It says, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret, listen to this, will reward you. The scripture will say this uh, so clearly uh, in the letter of Hebrews. Let me read to you from Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, This is what it says in chapter 11, verse 5. It says, by faith Enoch, speaking of an Old Testament man, was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And listen to this. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. The way to enjoyment of God in prayer is to believe in his essence as rewarder. Do you hear that? Hebrews chapter 11. He says, you cannot please him if you do not believe that his fundamental character, as you are on your face before him, as you go into your closet, as you pour out your soul, as you tell him about your needs, as you praise him for who he is, as you ask him for blessing on your friends and family, the fundamental posture for which you must have is believing that he is someone who longs to bring blessing, longs to bring reward. And if you don't believe that, Hebrews says, number one, you can't please him. And this passage from which we've read today would strongly suggest that you cannot enjoy him. You cannot please him, you cannot enjoy him unless you believe in his fundamental essence as rewarder. That is who he is. And friends, one of the things that I would tell you this morning is that if you're wondering who God is, if you're wondering what he thinks about your life, if you're wondering how he has designed to relate to you, I would say this, he's better than you think. No matter what you think this morning, he is better than you think. And the key to unlocking joy in God in prayer is to begin to be open to the reality that he stands there longing to reward those who seek him. And when you begin to see that, when you begin to understand that, when you begin to experience that, your prayers will not be chores to check off. They will be the essence of sweetness for which you long to be, for, wh- for where you long to be. And friends, we're going to um, go to this Lord's table here in a moment. 
And one of the reasons this table is so beautiful is because it draws out how the reward of God works in the economy of the world, right? So the Lord Jesus Christ comes to earth. He seeks God like no one has ever sought him before, right? He will have a long day feeding the masses. He'll have a long day healing the sick. He will be absolutely famished and exhausted. And what, do you, what will his disciples find? Well, say, well, Jesus is praying all night. He understood the reality of this teaching like no one has before him. He sought his father at every moment, right? But the reward of Christ in that experience was the cross. Why? Why would that be the case? Answer, so that you and I, who rarely seek God, right? Scripture says no one seeks for God. You and I who blow it every day, who relate to God as performers, who relate to God as pretenders, who relate to God, right, as fatalists, some of us, so that you and I, though we blow it every single day, might have the reward that was rightly Christ's. That as we come to this table, as we drink this wine, as we taste of this bread, that what we are doing is reacting out this gospel that says Jesus came. He had earned a just reward. But he took on our punishment so that we might have his reward. And friends, if you're, not, if you're here and you don't, you know, you're not believe as we do, and you're wondering about this, I will tell you that Jesus longs for you to have his reward. That's why he came. That's why he gave up his life unto death. And he calls you to trust him so that he might, as scripture says, lavish the riches of heaven upon you so that he might show you throughout the entirety of eternity the depth of his grace and love for his church. That's what heaven's all about. And we come, therefore, to this table together. We come here with no deserving of reward in our own strength. But Jesus says, I will give you mine. Let's go there together. Let me pray for us.